I want to encourage uh, parents of little ones to not be discouraged. I uh, sometimes I'm usually I'm oblivious to this, but I guess this morning I was a little bit tuned into the challenges that a lot of y'all face every single Sunday in either dropping off children or sitting with children. And I want to encourage you to not lose heart and not be discouraged about that. Uh, kids get more than you think. They catch some things that you may not realize. And two, for many of you, this is a season. And kids grow out of that season. So um, I could just imagine there's a potential to just say, man, it's just easier to stay home. God. <laughs> And I want to encourage you to not do that. You need to push through that and work through that. The, the goods are too critical and too necessary and too important really for you to be equipped as a mom and dad to pass up on what you need to come get. Uh, you, you got nothing to offer your kids then but food and shelter. I mean, those matter. But in eternity, um, you're really getting the good grub right now to provide them. You're getting the equipment. So... Don't lose heart and don't be discouraged. I want to pray for you, parents of little ones and uh, kids going through separation anxiety. There's nothing new under the sun. <laughs> it happened with us and it'll happen with more kids after your kids. So, and it'll happen with your grandkids. So don't fret over that and don't feel embarrassed either. I want to encourage you in that. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, I, uh, this morning I want to lift up parents of little bitty ones. Um, we know that you have a special care for those who are tending to young. And um, Lord, I pray that parents will be ministered to today and um, that they'll be encouraged that this is a season, a difficult season maybe with separation anxiety or kids being distracted or uh, having a difficult time sitting still. Lord, a couple things I pray for this morning is that parents will be encouraged. And I, too, pray for kids that are in this, this time with us that they'll be attentive. And just for an otherworldly engagement that shows that the Spirit's at work, even on little hearts. Um, Lord, also in this time this morning, before we engage the Word, I want to pray for another church in our community. I want to pray for just a close friend, Pastor Greg Fields and Tracy and for Westminster Presbyterian. And uh, Lord, what I pray for for this church is I pray that people in this community that are not in a church home and that are not engaging you through the word week by week, that you will connect them to this amazing meal that's being served up every week. I'm so thankful for the insight that you've given Greg and the work of the Spirit in his life, the command of the Scripture that he has. And Lord, I want, I want to pray that you'll just... I want to pray that you will use Greg. Um, Lord, I pray that he is being um, shaped by the Word. I pray that, he is, uh, that you're growing him, first of all, into the worshiper, and then the husband, and then the father, and then the pastor that he needs to be. Lord, I pray that this, this church will be encouraged with folks that you connect to this body. Lord, for this body this morning, I just pray for a sweet time together in the Word. Thankful for the journey together and uh, thankful for the work of the Spirit. Thankful for the Word. And just, we just want to expose it, unpack it today, and let it do, it do its sweet work. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> Good thing we prayed for parents this morning. <clears throat> All right, we're in John chapter 15 for a couple of minutes. <clears throat> 
We're continuing our journey through John chapter 15, but really this morning it's serving more as an escort to where we're going to spend the morning. But I'll go ahead and share our passage. We're in, our, in the remaining hours before Christ goes to the cross. Uh, starting in John chapter 15, we don't know where Christ is. He may be on the way to the Garden of Gethsemane. He may be in the Garden of Gethsemane by this point, somewhere between the upper room and um, his arrest. And Jesus' is teaching really, um, it's all potent. The whole Word of God is potent. But you just imagine these final hours before he goes up to the cross that he's sharing some really essential goods, some real marrow of who he is and what he's done and what this whole thing is about. <clears throat> so we're in that setting in John chapter 15. And he tells them, he says, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch of mine that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. A couple of things that we picked up from this, just these couple of verses so far. Now, we have moved further on in the chapter, but that captures the essence of the essentials we need this morning is that we see a father as a vine dresser, a heavenly father as a vine dresser in this garden of his people. And we see Christ as the vine, the true vine, in contrast with Israel. And then we see his followers as branches. Places where he's taken us in these last few months is to show us that that we are his branches and those who don't bear fruit are cut away and thrown into the fire. And that's something that we engage called apostasy, a difficult teaching. And then a few weeks ago, we considered the work of pruning in the life of a true branch. We're branch that bears fruit that's actually pruned so that it can bear more fruit. On that Sunday, we considered a couple of things. First of all, we considered that he prunes through suffering. You don't need to turn there, but just listen to this passage in 1 Peter 4. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial. You could hear beloved, a.k.a. branch. Don't be surprised at the fiery trial, a.k.a. pruning. When it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed, a.k.a. fruit. John 15 so beautifully interposed on that passage. He encourages the believer, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator or vine dresser while doing good. <clears throat> And suffering has a purpose, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> in the life of a believer. <clears throat> He's not just inflicting pain on his people or allowing things to happen for no purpose. In fact, there's fruit that's born through that suffering. He's up to something. It's good to know that God is at the helm and that all things do indeed work together for good in the life of those who are called according to his purpose. All things means all things. That should be an encouragement to you when you face an all thing. Secondly, a couple weeks ago, we considered that he prunes through the work of the Word. The Word is not just this book, but it's a sharp, double-edged sword that actually cuts and cleaves and hones and shapes and surgically deals with the dark, hard heart of man. Jesus told them in this John chapter 15 context, he said, You've already been cleaned. That word in the original language is the adjectival form of pruned in the verse before. It could read, you've already been pruned by the words I spoke to you. 
His words have that effect. Sometimes they cut. And this morning we're going to the third thing that I want us to consider regarding God's pruning of the branch is that he prunes through something called discipline. Turn to Hebrews chapter 12. We're going to spend the morning in Hebrews 12. That's I'm going to refer back to John chapter 15, but like I said, John chapter 15 is more of an escort. It's interesting, the commentators uh, for John chapter 15, when they deal with pruning, they refer to discipline and they look over at at Hebrews chapter 12. And the commentators for Hebrews chapter 12 refer back to John chapter 15. They are just so closely connected that it's appropriate for us to spend a morning examining Hebrews chapter 12. We're going to low crawl through this. That's the term that we use in the Marine Corps when you're down on all fours. Or you're actually lower than that. You're on your elbows and your knees. And you're low crawling through concertina wire. And Thank you, sir. Nice. <laughs> Helpful guy there. Um, <clears throat> thanks, Brett. Low crawling is, man, you're down on, on your elbows and you're down on your knees. You're going through concertina wire and going through mud. And you see a lot of things that are on the ground when you're down that low. So we're going to take our time and low crawl through this passage and check out the goods that are on the ground. Hebrews chapter 12, starting in verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, if you're familiar with the book of Hebrews, you know that the chapter before is a chapter that really introduces the heroes of the faith. Some amazing figures. We're going to look at a few of them, just mention them at least. But the writer of the book of Hebrews is writing to Hebrew believers and say, remember those guys. Therefore, because we're surrounded by such an awesome cloud group of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that's set before us. In the original language, this word and is usually translated and, but it can also mean some other things. It can mean that is, or it can mean, uh, it can give a certain refinement to what's being talked about beforehand. So in this case, let us lay aside every weight. This could be translated, that is, sin which clings so closely as you run the race. And that's how I'm going to handle this passage this morning. Because there's really no other weight. It's not like he's imagining some guys running around carrying some, some barbells or something. He's speaking of sin here. Let us run the race unencumbered that's set before us. Verse 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. The writer of Hebrews calls the reader back to men like Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, women like Sarah, men like Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, women like Rahab, and others. He calls them back to remembering things like this in verse 33. People who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. He's hearkening the reader back to those faith heroes. 
Therefore, because we're surrounded by this cloud of witnesses, we are to run what I'm going to call the marathon of faith. The race that's set before us. The marathon of faith that's in front of us. We are to be fruit-bearing branches that he's planted us to be to connect with John chapter 15. We are to run the marathon of faith that he set before us. This chapter in Hebrews is often considered a passage to help you in times of affliction. But what this passage really seems to be dealing with is it seems to be dealing with an even greater difficulty, even a greater test, is the difficulty of dealing with sin in our own lives. From the outset, he's dealing with sin. In verse 1, lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. He's dealing with sin, this difficult thing in our lives that we all have to reckon with. Since we live in the shadow of these kind of faithful people, we need to run unhindered. We need to run without weights, unfettered by the weight of sin. And we, as we wrestle with sin, we are to look to Christ. The New American Standard says, fix your eyes on Jesus like a heat-seeking missile. It's locked. We are to consider Christ. So let's take a moment to just consider him from this passage. It says he endured the cross. It says he despised the shame. This word for despised here in some ways means scorned the shame. We could say that he scorned the shame. We could even say better that he shamed the shame. Crucifixion was one of the most shameful things that could ever happen to somebody. It's painful. It's ugly. And you're likely most of the time when people were crucified, they're naked. Shameful time, your last moments on earth. But Jesus, our Jesus, took the shame and he turned it inside out and he turned shame into glory. That's the kind of God that we have. And that's the kind of God that can turn your shame and your suffering to glory. That's what he did with Jesus. He turned it inside out. And now he's seated at the right hand of the Father. When he said it's finished, he meant it. It's finished. He's seated at the right hand of the Father in glory. And he adored this hostility at the hands of sinful men. So he's encouraging those marathon race runners to consider him so that we don't grow weary or faint-hearted. This is the model that we're going to build today. I'm going to give you one half of it, and I'm going to give you the other half in a minute. But this is so essential that you see this. That Christ took what he did not need. That he bore what he did not deserve. And he got that at the hands of sinful men. Christ took what he did not need. He bore what he did not deserve. And he took it at the hands of sinful men. And he endured. In verse 4, he says to the reader, he says, In your struggle against sin, you've not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. As I considered this passage, I had to ask myself, do I struggle with sin to the point of even putting out an effort? He's writing to the reader not so much about suffering. He's writing to the reader about sin and dealing with sin in their own life. He says, have you even struggled with sin to the point of bleeding yet? Consider the one who did bleed and resisted to the point of bleeding. And I have to ask ask myself this question. Do I struggle with sin at all? 
John Owen, a Puritan writer, wrote on, um, wrote a book called The Mortification of Sin. He says this, he says, the choicest believers who are assuredly freed from the condemning power of sin ought yet make it their business all their days to mortify the indwelling power of sin. I'm going to read it again. You've got to read the Puritans twice. The choicest believers who are assuredly freed from the condemning power of sin. Amen? Ought yet make it their business all their days to mortify the indwelling power of sin. I'm reading that. I'm going, do I wrestle with sin? We're supposed to. The writer of the book of Hebrews is urging the Hebrew readers to wrestle and reckon with sin and to run the race unfettered, unhindered. The context here so far is we're dealing with a people that look like they're about to bail on the race, the marathon of faith. If you take in the whole book of Hebrews, he's appealing to them from the beginning to not bail on the race. When I was at A&M... <clears throat> I think I did this three years. There's a, a 10K in College Station. It's called the Straight Shot. Some of you who went to school at A&M might be familiar with it. You start down in Bryan, and you run 6.2 miles all the way through uh, Bryan over to College Station, right down University. I think it's a it university. It's the main drag. Something, 6, Highway 6, that actually business 6. You start in Bryan, and the funny thing is, is you're running through town, and you're passing all these businesses. And early on, that doesn't really matter that much because early on, you're not that tired. But as you go, you start to get tired. About the time you pass fajitaritas. <laughs> That's a problem. Any of you who've ever eaten at fajitaritas, you know what I'm talking about. And then what makes matters worse is I lived on campus and about mile four is you pass campus. And it actually happened one year. A buddy of mine and I were running the race, and we hadn't really prepared for it. And we were tired. We'd stayed up late the night before. I had a four-wheel drive that we'd take in the woods and just four-wheel drive all night long. Redneck. <laughs> and, man, we were up late. So we went to run this race. And about the time we passed campus, I just kind of, I said, hey, man, you want to go to the dorm? He said, yeah, man, let's go. So we just kind of ran, took a right, and ran right across campus over to the, over to the, over to the dorm. It sounds like these guys are running the marathon of faith, but they're passing some distractions. You can just imagine some of the things, you know, visually. Imagine what this must have been like. The, line, the streets are lined with all sorts of enticements. The hooters on one side. Man, let's stop. Grab some chicken wings. The mall. Water parks. Massage parlors, vacation homes, cantinas with patios full of patrons saying, chill, dude, that looks hard. You look tired. Look at my flip-flops. <laughs> look here, I'm at ease. You can imagine that imagery, that straight shot imagery. It appears that these guys are surrounded by enticements and they're considering bailing on the race. And he's appealing to them, keep running the race. Don't eat and drink and rise to play. But press on and finish the race that's set before you, that ordained race. 
And pick up in verse 5. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves. And he chastises every son whom he receives. This passage here, a good portion of it, what he's referring back to is a passage in Proverbs chapter 3. We're going to look at that later. He's appealing to the Hebrew readers to remember the teaching in Proverbs and remember the relationship that a father has with his son. And when the father disciplines them to not be discouraged and not bail on the race. When the father is disciplining. Discipline in this context means teaching and training and equipping and some of those things that you would imagine that it means. But it also has a corrective and punitive element to it. It even involves correction and punishment and maybe even more so in this context. It looks again like the discipline that he's dealing with here is in response to sin back there in verse 1. It's how the whole thing starts in verse 1. Lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And then in verse 4. In your struggle against sin, you have not resisted yet to the point of shedding your blood. He seems to be dealing with sin in their life, not suffering. And he's saying, run with endurance their ordained race. When God deals with, with sin in your life, when he pulls out... the pruning shears... And he cuts you as he deals with you through even correction and punishment. He's doing that so you run better. He's doing that so you bear more fruit. He's at work. There's a plan in play. And don't regard that dealing lightly. And don't be weary when reproved. He's removing the backpack. When I was a kid in the 70s and running kind of started taking off. Bill Rogers or some guy was kind of one of the big proponents of it. Other guys, I'm thinking now, I can't remember their name. One of the funny things about running, one of the ways that they thought to get better at running was to wear these leg weights. You ever seen by running those leg weights? You know, the tube socks with a, 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 a blue stripe and a gray stripe and then another blue stripe pulled all the way up. The running shorts, they were so, so short, they looked like shunderwear. And leg weights. When God is at work in the life of the faith marathoner, he's removing the leg weights. He's removing the backpack from your shoulders. He's pruning you so you'll bear more fruit. And in verse 6 it says that it's his love fueling that discipline. It's not his rejection of you. In fact, he says it's his acceptance of you. He disciplines and chastises every son whom he receives. To the son, it might feel like a rejection, but it's not a rejection. Contrary, it's just the opposite. You're seeing his faithfulness in motion. You're seeing his love, attentive love, in action when you're on the receiving end of discipline. <clears throat> Verse 7. It is for discipline that you have to endure. Endure the cut at the hands of a loving God. Endure the discipline of a loving, attentive vine dresser. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children 
<clears throat> and not sons at all. The writer of the book of Hebrews here introduces us to an illustration of an earthly father and son and the relationship between an earthly father and son. And as I read this, I realized in our context, this immediately shoots the wheels off his, what he's trying to say to us for many. There's a problem that we've got to reckon with if we're going to compare an earthly father and his son to help us understand the way a loving father deals with his children. The first problem to consider is that some fathers don't discipline their children at all. Some fathers leave that to mama. Some fathers are too busy, too tired for the notion of discipline in the life of their child, so the whole family's confused by this comparison. If the family were to take on their image of the father's role in the family, then this God would seem busy and aloof. So that's the first problem we've got to deal with. The second problem is that some fathers are inconsistent in their discipline. They're erratic. A good word is capricious. You never know. One time you might get a pat on the back. One time you might get a laugh, <laughs> a cuff on the shoulder. Next time you might get a, a, a fist upside the head. Fathers who are capricious and erratic give the whole family the picture that God acts that way. That God is inconsistent. You never know what to expect from him. He might beat you up. Or he might wink at your sin. So that's not a good example either. And another problem is some father's discipline is not for the good of the child, but for their own comfort and ease. The only time a child might hear from dad is when the child's too loud for dad to watch his show. Thankfully, that's not the kind of God that we have that just disciplines us when he wants peace and quiet. The sort of father that's being Envisioned here is a father who wants his son to walk in wisdom. A father who wants his son to walk strongly, consistently facing life with insight and equipment to handle whatever he or she might face. Imagine this sort of father to be the sort of father that does exactly what he says he'll do. To be the sort of father who's consistent in his punishment, yet Ample in his praise. That's the sort of father we're talking about here. A father who's gentle but strong, patient yet demanding. This sort of father illustrates the loving kindness of our heavenly father. Turn to Proverbs. Keep your finger in Hebrews, but turn to Proverbs chapter 3. I want us to see what a loving father, an attentive, engaged, disciplining father looks like. We're just going to look at some snapshots in chapters 3, 4, and 5. As you listen to this father dealing with his own son, think about our heavenly father dealing with us. Verse 1, chapter 3, My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Verse 7, Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Envision a dad sitting with his boy and sharing those sort of goods. A dad maybe on a hunting trip. Maybe he's in a fishing boat. Maybe he's in the backyard throwing the baseball. Maybe he's in the den with his Bible open. 
And then our familiar passage in verse verse 11, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father and the son in whom he delights. Verse 21, My son, do not lose sight of these. Keep sound wisdom and discretion, and they will be life for your soul and adornment for your neck. Then you will walk on your way securely, and your foot will not stumble. Chapter 4, verse 1, Hear, O sons, a father's instruction, and be attentive that you may gain insight, for I give you good precepts. Do not forsake my teaching. Verse 10, hear my son and accept my words that the years of your life may be many. I've taught you the way of wisdom. I've led you in the paths of uprightness. When you walk, your step will not be hampered. And if you run, you will not stumble. Verse 20, my son, be attentive to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Let them not escape from your sight. Keep them within your heart. For they are life to those who find them and healing to all their flesh. Chapter 5, verse 1. My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding that you may keep discretion and your lips may guard knowledge. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey. Here, cantinas full of patrons saying, you look tired. You don't need to race. Race later. Her speech is smoother than oil, but in the end she is as bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life, here faith marathon. Her ways wander and she does not know it. And now, O sons, listen to me. Do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her and do not go near the door of her house. Lest, if you do, here's the worst case scenario he presents to his son. If you give your heart to others and your years to the merciless, lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. In verse 12, Here's what that son would say, how I hated discipline. It was hard and I didn't like it. I hated it and my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. And in verse 23, he dies for lack of discipline, a son. A child of God dies for lack of discipline and becomes his great folly, he is led astray, as does the child of God without discipline. Man, that's the ideal father. That father sounds relentless. That father sounds consistent. That father sounds busy about engaging his son in the things that matter. Something, a question that I've reckoned with and we've got to reckon with. It's a rhetorical question. doesn't need an answer, but it's one for you to sit and think on for a minute. Does discipline at the hand of God as presented by Hebrews chapter 12 that actually requires endurance trouble you? Does that sort of God trouble you? Does that complement the understanding that you have of God? Do you see it as love? As I'm preparing this sermon, I'm thinking I never have really thought of having to endure under my God's discipline. The thought notion just kind of troubles me. 
But that's what's taught here in Hebrews chapter 12. How do you feel about that kind of God? Let's consider first, how do you feel about that kind of father? I'm thinking about the relentless father. The relentless discipling father here in Greenville, Rockwall, Commerce, Quinlan area in 2010. What would we think of this sort of father? What would we think of a father that's relentless in his discipline of his children? There's the potential to think that, dude, you need to lighten up. Dude, you need to chill. How many times did you appeal to your son to listen? You just need to take it easy, brother. Let that boy be what that boy is going to be. We might look at this father's relentless discipline to include correcting and punishment and think it's too much. But I think, I think this father realizes what's at stake. This father says, how can I not bring these goods to this child? For this child, this lad, this lass's view of the world, this, this young person's view of himself, this person's view of God is at stake. This lad's holiness at stake. Not his happiness. I care little about his happiness. I care much about his holiness. Now we consider the type of God that we have as loving father who consistently and relentlessly and tirelessly disciplines his own children. And yes, even corrects and yes, even punishes. We need to realize what's at stake in his case. What's at stake in his case is is his fame. What's at stake in his case is his renown is at stake. His glory is at stake. Our readiness to see him face to face is at stake. The health of tomorrow's church is at stake. The health of your family tomorrow is at stake. The kingdom of God is at stake. So it would seem in this case, when we really consider what's at stake in God's situation, whereas he deals with us through discipline, it would be inappropriate for him not to be consistent and relentless and tireless in disciplining his children. We would think him negligent considering what's at stake. So certainly we wouldn't think, chill, God, take it easy. Revelation chapter 319 it says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Picking up in Hebrews 12, 9. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. God's up to something good when he disciplines his children. God is up to working holiness in us when he disciplines his children. And we are to endure under that discipline. I told you I was going to build half of a construct or a model. And that first half was that Jesus took what he did not need. He bore what he did not deserve at the hands of sinful men. And that we are to endure considering him as model. I'm going to build on that in a minute. That's half of it. The other half so far that we built 
Is it as Christ took what he did not need, endured what he did not deserve at the hands of sinful men, we are to endure getting what we do need. And really, honestly, frankly, getting what we do deserve. But in our case, not at the hands of sinful men. In our case, it's at the hands, the loving, pruning, gentle hands of a good and godly father. Of a vine dresser that has a plan that's working something in you for his own glory. What happened to Christ over here was unjust. What happened to Christ was unfair. What happened to Christ was capricious. Spitting, slapping, thorns, spearing, mocking, nailing. But what happens to us is just. What happens to us when we're disciplined is fair. What happens to us is something that we need, and it's not capricious. But has a purpose of growing us in holiness. It's good to know that we have this sort of father that's going to love us in this way. Father's good enough, that cares enough to discipline us for glory. Verse 11. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. All discipline seems painful and is not pleasant. Here, pruning. Here, cut. Here, ouch. But this discipline yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. This pruning yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who are trained by it. What it sounds like here is a child of God who is just living this way. A child of God who is so Godward oriented and so biblically informed that he knows that he needs some sin that needs to be reckoned with. And this this child of God is embracing the discipline of God. Sounds like a child of God who knows that they need it on the marathon of faith. These leg weights are heavy. This backpack is heavy. I need a loving God to help me with this. There are some objections that I think that one might have at this notion of a disciplining God. Some objections that make this difficult. The first objection might be... I thought we were under grace. Sin doesn't really matter anymore, does it? Let me tell you right now, that's a horrible misunderstanding of grace. Grace is something good that covers you. It's the righteousness of another that covers you while God is working out holiness in your life. Grace is good, but don't misunderstand it. It's not licensed to sin. It's something that covers you while God works out holiness in your life and he does it through things like this these prunings like discipline another objection might be that my sin doesn't really require the rigors of discipline I'm not really all that bad and I would offer that you haven't spent much time here or it's been some time since you have been here if you think that you don't need discipline 
You have a terrible misunderstanding of yourself. And you don't understand holiness either. You don't understand how contaminating sin is and how holy our God is. And the third objection might be, I don't have a difficult time with this notion about God because I thought God was love. And this passage tells us that God is love and that God loves us in this way. So if it doesn't sound compatible with your definition of love, then you need to biblically inform love. Imagine a dad walking around Walmart. It's been a couple years since I saw the picture of the kid that actually crawled in the claw machine. Some of y'all may remember that. A couple years ago, you know the claw machine, the little thing you put money in, you got it around and it drops down and catches something. There's a picture of a kid that was actually in it. I don't know how he got in it. He's laying back. The fireman had to come cut him out of it. Thinking about, I mean, you go to Walmart right now, you're going to see some unruly kids. And show me a dad that's kind of laughing about what his kid is doing. And I'll show you a, kid, a dad that doesn't love his kid. Show me a dad that's not capricious either, slapping his kid upside the head. That's not loving either. Show me a dad that's coming alongside his kid and saying, Son, listen, we're going to talk about this later. But you need to straighten up right now for the glory of God. Remember your baptism, son. Remember who you are. I'll show you love in motion when you show me that kind of dad. God is love when he disciplines his children. So how does he get it done? I'm just going to offer three quick ways. First of all, with the illuminating work of the word. Turn to Romans chapter 7. How does God get discipline done in our lives? How does he accomplish it? It's a better way to say it. It doesn't sound so ignorant. Romans chapter 7. Beginning in verse 6. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve not under the old written code, but in the new life of the Spirit. Someone could live in that passage and think that we don't even need the law anymore. We don't need the Ten Commandments. We don't even need the Old Testament anymore. We're under a new covenant, so all that stuff is irrelevant. Verse 7 continues, What then shall we say that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Apart from the law, sin lies dead. What he's describing here is the role of the word in the life of a person that's completely ignorant about sin. You open this Bible and you start reading it and you go, oh, it was something that was there all along and this word put its shape around it. It drew lines around it and colored it in. So now I see covetousness. If it were not for the word, I wouldn't even know that I needed discipline. But I go to that word and I see, oh, not only do I find that I need it, But through the work of the Holy Spirit in my life, He actually refines me in it. The Word is an instrument that God uses for discipline. The Spirit brings conviction and He refines you through it. I was thinking this morning, it's sort of like running a stop sign. I've done this before. I bet you've done this in a neighborhood that's unfamiliar. And you just blow right by a stop sign. Okay, bushes in front of it or something. We'll use that excuse. You didn't do it on purpose. 
How do you feel after you find out that you did that? Your wife says, or your husband says, honey, you just ran a stop sign. And you go, oh, man, I feel terrible. That's what the Word does to us. When we read the Word, we go, ah. I didn't know I ran the stop sign until I read that Bible and showed me that I wronged the living God. And God uses that as the first step of, step of discipline. And the Holy Spirit comes alongside and brings the conviction that says, I can't believe I did that. Lord, keep me from ever doing that again. A second means for discipline is that the hands and hearts and mouths of those on the journey with you. I'm going to tell you right now, this is one of the sweetest forms of discipline in my life, and it's one of the hardest ones. Who better to serve in this role in your life than somebody that knows you? Who better to come alongside and be an instrument of discipline in your life than a true friend? We all want somebody to help us when we're down. Do we all want somebody in our life to help us when we're wrong? Are we never wrong? And we ought to be running to find people that will shoot lovingly straight with us that God will use as instruments of discipline in our lives. One who will tell you that you have bad breath. That's a good test of a friend, isn't it? One who will tell you, man, you need a spiritual breath man. One who says, bro, you're playing in the street. God uses that as discipline in our lives. Luke chapter 6 shares the story of the, the, you know, the taking the, the speck out of a brother's eye when you have a log in your own. It's often used as a passage that says, man, don't judge one another. That's not a passage saying don't judge one another. It's a passage telling you how to judge one another. It says, have the log removed from your own eye and then take the speck out of your brother's eye. Contrary to the sage wisdom of the world's first murderer, we are in fact our brother's keeper. Not as a bunch of meddlers, but as a bunch of people who love each other, who see ourselves in that role of God's sweet hand of discipline in each other's lives. And we need people to our left and to our right and to our front and to our back who will tell us when we're wrong will help us with that. Our impression, Trip, Ted Trip or Paul Trip, I can't remember which one, said our impression of ourself is like a carnival mirror. We need others to hold up the mirror of the word, others in our lives to hold up the mirror of the word to see who we really are and see what we really look like. It's hard to hear that from a friend, but man, that's medicine. That's good medicine from a friend. The third thing that I've found, another instrument that God uses in my life for discipline is his circumstances that get connected, dots that get connected as I'm in prayer. When I'm spending time with the Lord either by myself or with my family or with other people, where he connects dots and I see that circumstances that are born out are due to sin in my life and I come under conviction during times of prayer. So I encourage you to pray, and he'll do that in your life. God uses these things as pruning shears in our lives so that we'll run the race better, so that we'll bear more fruit if we endure them. Consider Christ who took what he did not need, 
who bore what he did not deserve at the hands of sinful men and be encouraged, encouraged to endure what God is doing in our lives that we do need, that we do deserve at the hands of a loving Father. Consider Christ as the model for that sort of endurance. I have some good news for you though. <clears throat> if you're like me, you failed today and you know you'll fail again. And even considering Christ as model will not be enough in your life. And thankfully, he serves as more than a model. Chapter 11 is full of models. Chapter 12 in Tucson introduces someone who's a model, but also a means. For when you look to Christ, when you fix your eyes on Christ, when you consider Christ who endured such difficult things at the hands of sinful men, you're not just considering a model. Something happens in you. He becomes your means as well. He works holiness in you. That's why Christ is so much more than the guys in chapter 11 that I enjoy. Christ is the author and perfecter of our faith. You got to like that word. He's the perfecter of our faith. So as you're at work in your life at the work of killing sin, you can be encouraged that Christ is the one that's really working it in you. He's the perfecter of our faith. I'll leave you with another quote from John Owen. To kill sin is the work of living men. Where men are dead, as all unbelievers, the best of them are dead, sin is alive and will live. I was thinking about how seldom we just deal head on with sin in this church. And I don't know that we can do it too often. We need to be thankful that we have a loving Father that disciplines us when we do sin. That comes alongside us and works in our lives to bring circumstances to bear, to teach us and train us and bear fruit in holiness. I'm thankful for that sort of Father. I'm thankful for that sort of love. Let me pray. God, we are so thankful for your role in our life as loving Father, attentive, loving Father that's involved and engaged, that doesn't just stroke and praise and pat and affirm, but who also comes alongside and puts your arm around us in the difficult and painful but sweet work of discipline. Lord, I pray as a result of this message that each of us can look at circumstances in our lives and connect dots to see you faithfully bring discipline to bear in our lives. And Lord, I pray that as a result of that, that we'll not buck that as the unwise son, but that we will embrace that and that we'll let you be about that work of discipline in our lives. It makes for running lighter and faster and leaner. It makes for bearing sweet fruit of righteousness. Lord, while you're at work in us doing this, Lord, we are so thankful that we are clothed in the righteousness of a blessed other. 
while, we are, while you are at work in our lives, working holiness and mortifying sin, Lord, I pray that you will guard us from ever thinking that we can earn salvation, that we can ever maintain salvation. Lord, I pray that you will keep ever in front of us that that's already been earned by a blessed, perfect other. But Lord, I pray that because of grace, that there will not be license for lethargy, license to sin, license to go on sinning, license to stop at the cantina, take a break from the race terminally. Lord, that you'll give us a view to the finish line with our eyes fixed on Christ. Lord, I pray that you will, in this coming week, through small groups or through family times together, through working through what you have shared this morning, that you'll give us greater clarity at what this actually means. That you'll give us more understanding about your work of pruning in our lives. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for our Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. We're going to have the Lord's Supper now. Let me share with you something before we have the Lord's Supper. I, I would expect that some of you may wonder why we do the Lord's Supper every week. And I want to encourage you to come at that question in a different direction. Come at it from a different direction. I, I would suspect that, I hope that most of you have a meal together as a family at least a couple nights a week. And I don't think, I, I, would, I would not imagine that anybody doing that would think, you know, we don't want to do that too often because that would kind of maybe take off the edge of the, the blessing that it is for a family to sit together. If you're like my family, I don't know that we can do that too often. It's just good to eat together. We spend time together, eating together, connecting so I want to encourage you, if you've kind of thought, you know, why don't we do this every week? To maybe come at that a different way. Say, why wouldn't we? Why wouldn't we dine with each other? Why wouldn't we dine with God every chance that we get? It's good. It's good to fellowship with each other over the meal. Let's look at the scripture and see what this meal consists of. The Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The same way also he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Man, I'll tell you, this has been a weird, weird, we're going to take this in a minute, but let me just tell you, it's been a weird week studying this because it's um, I don't know that it's ever really been built into me that it's okay to see God as providing consequences for our sin because I see things in the high court of heaven as us bathed in the righteousness of God Christ that is which we should absolutely in eternity in salvation terms man we are righteous through the blood of Jesus but yet God doesn't wink at sin in our lives I mean, just the passage that I read for, from, for example, regarding the Lord's Supper. What happens afterward is Paul is dealing with the Corinthian church because they're taking the supper wrongly. And guess what happened to some of them? They were sick. 
There are consequences for sin right now. Someone who is given over to a life of inactivity and gluttony that gets heart disease and type 2 diabetes and dies early, can we not connect the two? Are we just going to say, that's a victim? Can we not call sin, sin? An alcoholic that loses his family and his job and everything. What if he is genetically disposed to alcoholism? Does that mean we're not going to call it sin? He's a victim. Can we call it sin and say, man, there's consequences. Now, the hard part is we don't want to be in that business saying, man, you're bearing the consequences of your sin. But maybe we can connect that dot. Maybe the Holy Spirit helps us connect those sort of dots where I'm seeing the mess that I'm swimming in being a result of my sin. Any of you have empty bank accounts right now because of your sin, because you were poor stewards of what God gave you? Consequences. I'm thankful for a good God that empties my account because I'm thumbing my nose at Him. I don't want a God that's not consistent in things like that. He trains us with things like that. Man, I, those are just a few examples. I hesitated to even provide any examples because <clears throat> I don't want anybody to get wrapped around the axle on that because we've all got our own little or big thing, besetting sins that we wrestle with. My hope and prayer is that he disciplines you in those sins as I hope and pray that he disciplines me. You know, I'll tell you right now, God has used other people, some of you, to discipline me. Steve Roberts, right here. You might think my sermons are harsh now. <laughs> you should have been here a few years ago. But God used a brother to come alongside me and say, man, you're being hard with God's people. And my first response was, how dare ye? <laughs> but my second response was, thank you, brother, for lovingly shooting straight with me and letting me know that. I believe that God's given me a wife in many ways, the same sort of role in my life, the work, the work of sanctification. She's a blessing to me in that she calls it out lovingly when it needs to be called out. Some of you that singles that want to get married someday, do you want to get married for that reason? To have somebody that's coming alongside your teammate in sanctification? That's what you're going to get. But that's a good thing. Man, we need that. As we take the cup now, <clears throat> which I told you we would take, what I want us to do is, while we are kind of, we did call out some of these things that we face, these consequences that we face for our sin, because we have a good God that, that disciplines us. Let's right now, as we take this cup, think about the one who, put, who bore our punishment in eternity. Think about the righteousness that we wear that was born and earned by another. Let's enjoy his perfection. As we consider our imperfections, Let's enjoy his perfection. Let's enjoy his sacrifice on the cross that made walking with the living holy God possible. Let's drink. <clears throat> God, we, as we take this bread and this cup and as we continue to worship in song, we declare and proclaim that our righteousness has already been earned in the finished work of the cross. Lord, we enjoy our Christ right now. We enjoy that 
in terms of salvation that you see us through sin, cleansing, detergent blood. It cleanses us from all unrighteousness that we stand reconciled with you. Lord, we are thankful though in the micro, in the dailiness of life as we walk with you as one of your children, that you're about this sweet work in our lives of discipline. Giving us consequences that are a result of our sin. Lord, may we connect the dots. Guard us from seeing ourselves as terminal victims. Lord, I pray that through the work of the Word and the Holy Spirit that we will see sin in our lives and call it for what it is. And that we'll reach out to other brothers, other sisters, friends, family, other worshipers, to the Word. We'll cry out to you for the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives to make us look more like your Son for your own glory. We love you, Lord. We continue to worship in song. Amen. This week is families and um, small groups. Um, so just do some examination. You know, so Lord, show me sin in my life and show me how you're disciplining me. And Lord, if you're not, I pray that you will. <laughs> That's a strong prayer. Lord, I pray that you will call to my attention ways where I'm thumbing my nose at you that you will reconcile that through your pruning work so that I may bear more fruit because your name is at stake, your renown is at stake, your fame is at stake, the kingdom of God is at stake. Tomorrow's church is at stake. Tomorrow's family is at stake. Lord, for your own glory, show me my sin. Man, that's a hard prayer, but it's a good one. It's a good one. It's one that makes you appreciate the cross even more too. Um, Steve Roberts, come up here, if you would. Steve and Lori have been here for more than five years, but Steve has been an elder at Crosspoint for five years. And you're, this is actually your anniversary Sunday, this Sunday. Um, we were going to present this Bible to him last week, so it actually says um, on 25th of April, but Steve was sick last week. So you guys can make a pen change there if you want to. Um, but this is an ESV study Bible, calfskin. It's good. It's good. Nothing better than the smell of a new Bible. And also we've got a little gift for you and Lori. Uh, Riata gift certificate. And um, a couple nights at the uh, Embassy Suites in, in uh, um, Fort Worth. And uh, a little note from me. Stephen Lori, May the 2nd, which is, is today the 2nd? Yeah. Marks your five-year anniversary ministering to Crosspoint Fellowship as an elder. Thinking through some of the challenges we've shared, I'm thankful for God's ministry to us and through us in those times. One of those challenges is what I just shared with y'all, ironically. That wasn't easy to hear that from a brother. I'm thankful for God's ministry to us and through us in those times. We've walked into many a meeting wondering how in the world we should respond to a given issue. Yet God, time and time again, showed us a wisdom that was greater than any one of us. He's been really good to us. Yes. And Steve, you have served well and you and Lori are being poured out for the glory of God. And we're grateful. You know, 
Scott and I get to go on a three-month sabbatical, so this is just kind of a little miniature version of that. You can't leave your job for three months, but we did want to say thank you and say that we were blessed to serve with you, and uh, we love you. Scott and Brad, y'all come up here. Let's pray for you. You smell it? Good. It smells good. <laughs> God, we are so thankful for uh, the time we've had together this morning. We're thankful for Steve and for... Um, Five years of service, uh, serving well, being spent, being poured out for your glory. Lord, I pray that uh, if it's your will, that you'll give Steve another five. And I pray that you'll sustain him, that he will see you at work in your garden. And uh, that he'll be encouraged and that he'll have the mind and heart of a gardener that's patient and gentle and loving and true. I'm thankful for the role that he's had in my life, that you, the tool and instrument that you've used him uh, in my life. I'm just uh, so thankful for the journey together. I pray that he and Lori just have a sweet time together in Fort Worth. That is a time of refreshing, a time to be encouraged, know that their church home uh, loves them and is thankful for them. And um, Lord, we love you. We thank you for our Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you, bro. Yeah. Yeah.